Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Ginwa, Emma and Antonia to talk about thermodynamics and try and figure out how it links to our different disciplines in science and engineering and why it's useful. Ginwa, we kind of started off this conversation just the two of us originally last week. So what do you find so interesting about thermodynamics? Well, the first time I encountered thermodynamics was in my bachelor's degree. I did chemistry and I studied basic and advanced thermodynamics. And even though it was really hard to grasp, you know, the concepts at the time, and I still find it really hard. But at least I was initiated to the importance of thermodynamics in any physical or chemical process that involve a change of energy. And I think it can complement other you know, scientific topic to understand how the world evolved from the Big Bang till now. It can explain reactions, uh, you know, that can constitute the process of life, uh, whether in nature or in our bodies, you know, telling us why this system evolves this way. They took this path and not the other. So that's what makes me really interested in thermodynamics. Uh, So basically it explains life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the arrow of time, yeah. (laughs) why things are evolving this way and not the other way. Cool. I guess we'll we'll get into more of the details as we go through this conversation because there was a load of technical stuff in there. Um, And I have to confess that I have never actually been taught thermodynamics. So I think you know more about it than I do. I agree. It's very hard. Um, I kind of picked it up as I've gone through my career. Emma, your background is in physics, so I'm guessing you can help understand it from a different point of view. Yeah, I hope so, at least. Anyways, when I was first introduced into thermodynamics, it was in the concept of the definitions of thermodynamic laws and kind of some basic concepts, which didn't seem to have much applications. But um, then in like later study, we looked at it from a statistical mechanics background, and that kind of just like flipped a lot of switches to me to how things are actually important and how entropy I understood what entropy was in statistical mechanics but I don't think I really knew what it was in the context of thermodynamics so even with the thermodynamic laws you kind of just learn them as a statement but you can get a lot of insight into what they actually represent and do for example the second law of thermodynamics is about how you can't have a decrease in entropy but that can actually evolve to how you can't have heat movement from cooler to hotter but when you can learn about more interesting applications and what they represent with the zeroth law of thermodynamics which is that when you have two bodies which are in thermal equilibrium with a separate third body if you change the temperature of that third body you can use how the other two bodies react to rank their temperature and you can scale that based on the volume of an ideal gas and that's where you get your absolute temperature kind of um, thermometer and you have absolute zero being the lowest temperature it allows you to kind of rank bodies by temperature which is essentially what we do with thermometers. So to understand the basic laws of thermodynamics you study something even harder with statistics to get the inverted commas basics down yeah in the basics it's a lot of seeing an equation you've never seen before and then trying to make sense of it and I feel like the sense sometimes comes with the harder stuff because you understand some hard stuff and then it makes it look easy even though 
it's still a difficult concept to grasp. I feel like it makes it a lot nicer when you can go back to some more simple stuff and you have a reason to why it's important. Because you've got your head around or start to get your head around that more difficult thing. I suppose it makes the stuff that at first seemed hard seem a bit easier. It's kind of my understanding of trying to teach myself some of this stuff. And Sonia, your background's different again. So tell us something that you know or that you find interesting or how you got into thermodynamics. I studied chemical engineering, so thermodynamics has to have an application. But for the first two years of my undergrad, it did not have much of an application. So how Emma was talking about the laws of thermodynamics, I was like, okay, that exists. I don't know how to use that yet, but it exists. And we had to learn all these concepts to get to the point of, this is how a basic engine works, the basics of how a gas turbine cycle works and how refrigerators work. I guess that relates back to how now the UK is looking at heat pumps to help decarbonize heat through basically changing from our gas boiler system to kind of reverse air conditioners. Thermodynamics is basically about moving heat around, is what that word literally means. And that's what you're talking about with air conditioners and heat pumps. They move heat from one location to another. I remember reading about this a while ago when I was trying to get my head around thermodynamics. Near the start of this textbook, after it talked about the crazy stuff that happened when they were trying to figure out thermometers, as Emma mentioned, (laughs) was this is how refrigerators work, which again is about moving heat around. And because we have refrigerators, that meant that cities could expand because you could be further away from food, because now food would last longer because it's refrigerated. So thermodynamics had this very profound effect on how people lived and where they lived, which I think is quite a powerful statement that suggests that we should look into how thermodynamics works in a bit more detail. So I'm guessing that someone here can explain in more detail how a refrigerator actually works beyond it just moves heat around. All right, let's give it a go. The basic idea, you have an area you want cold, an area you want hot, and In it, we'll use a working fluid and that uh, will sort of be the medium for transferring the heat between places. And I'm going to get a diagram so I can like talk through this in order. Antonia goes to get a diagram from the internet. Whatever she finds, we will share as a link for this episode. I hope it's a good one. Otherwise, um, (laughs) otherwise this, this explanation will be really bad. I know that refrigerators have compressors. My freezer is not a particularly expensive one. You can hear the compressor kicking in. It's quite loud. And there's like, oh, oh, like a, what's the best way of describing it? I want to say it's like a radiator, like a, a network of pipes on the back. Like a coil. It is a radiator. You know, the back of your fridge, there's a black binned metal. And that's where it lets out all the heat because you've got, um, now I need to remember which way around this is. I think we can relate refrigerators to the second law of thermodynamics that says that heat will never go spontaneously from cold places to warm places. So it needs to go from the warm meat and food we put in the fridge towards the cold fluid that we have on the back of our refrigerator. And it works by, I think, compressing, decompressing that refrigerant. Because just imagine the refrigerant is in a as in a container, whenever you compress it, then you increase the temperature, but then it circulates in kind of a tube. And then there's a decompressor that kind of vaporizes it. So it becomes colder because it's just, you know, the the fluid, it has a lot of room 
to move so it vaporizes and become colder and this cold one is going to circulate and take the warm or the warmth from the food in our fridge yeah so we're also missing the latent heat of evaporation or condensation basically when you're boiling water for example when you're at atmospheric pressure you can never get it above 100 because all the extra heat is going into evaporating the liquid changing state from liquid to vapor so all that energy goes into that and so when you condense it goes the other way the heat is lost that's very true it's actually related to evaporative cooling which is sweating you know when the water evaporates uh, from you know the skin is just take part of the latent heat from the water that remains on our skin so it cooled down and i think this is the same thing that is happening with the uh, coolant or refrigerant in the refrigerator when it evaporates this is what you mean Antonia don't you well I'm trying to say yes (laughs) (laughs) so you're saying that the substance that's in the cooling loop because it's it's either a liquid or a gas depending on where it is when it's in the part of the loop that's inside the refrigeration chamber then it's being turned into a gas because it's taking heat out of that chamber and then when it goes to that the snaky coil on the back of the fridge, it's turning back into a liquid. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Right. The diagram I'm looking at confused me because it was blue on the hot side. <laughs> <laughs> the diagram didn't work well for you, Antonia. No. <laughs> Therefore, we are not sharing that diagram no. in this podcast episode <laughs> description. We shall find a better one. You know, though, I feel like after all this time, I understand latent heat now, but I never really understood what was going on with it. So that's a positive. Just remember when you eat boiled potato, it has a very high latent heat. That's why you're burned with it and it didn't doesn't like cool down very easily. But it's not the same because you're not changing the state of the potato, are you? No. It'd be a latent heat of potato rather than latent heat of evaporation or condensing. I thought the latent heat is the energy stored in whatever that material and you're taking a part of it while evaporating because you're changing state from liquid to gas, but I'm not sure, honestly. The energy that's stored is the heat capacity, isn't it? Yeah, I would say stored is the heat capacity and then latent heat is the change of state. Yeah. Your explanation of sweating, I think, was correct, Gimla, because that's how I understand it. But I think for a potato being hot, because you're right, certain foods do feel hotter when they've been heated for the same amount of time. Yeah, let's check latent heat. This is not where I expected this conversation to go, talking about the latent heat of potatoes, but it's quite entertaining. The dynamics of food is the most important part of this. Of course, and you know what order to eat things in, so you don't burn your mouth. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you need to rank the specific heat capacity of different food items, you know which way to eat it (laughs) but wouldn't we just look at the surface area instead which has more of an effect the surface area like broccoli you know if you look at the stem versus the floor air broccoli is not all that hot anyway though regardless of which part of it you look at from what i remember i feel like we're getting a bit off topic (laughs) very much off topic And please, the latent heat, you were right, Emma, it's the heat required to evaporate to change phase. I think we might circle back to this if we start talking about some chemistry. <laughs> in Ginwag, you talked about thermodynamics in your sort of chemistry background. So do you want to take us through some of that chemistry stuff that you know? 
Yeah, so the way I understand thermodynamics as a chemist is when I talk about Gibbs free energy and how likely the reaction is happening or how spontaneous or not spontaneous it is. And I really like the Gibbs energy kind of concept because it includes all the other state functions like uh, the enthalpy, the entropy, and also the temperature and the pressure. Without going into, you know, details of equations, we always tend as chemists to calculate the Gibbs free energy just to know if the reaction is spontaneous or not. So we were talking about entropy always goes in a particular direction, but then that suggests that everything is just trying to become more random. Like everything's losing its structure and all the atoms are just spreading out into this soup of nothingness. But that doesn't always happen because you get things spontaneously ordering in nature. Isn't that to do with the Gibbs free energy? It's a complex topic to, to discuss, but from my understanding of the Gibbs free energy, you have a competing factors of the enthalpy, which is the heat in whatever system you have. And you have then the temperature and the enthalpy. So the higher the temperature and the higher the enthalpy, the more the system is spontaneous and the more the Gibbs energy is negative. But also if the system has a lot of enthalpy, which is uh, like the heat content in the system, then this would outweigh the entropy and then the Gibbs free energy will become positive. So the Gibbs free energy is essentially the change in enthalpy minus the change in entropy at a particular temperature, right? Yes. And that's why you're talking about it being positive or negative, because it's the difference between the two. And the fact that it's temperature in there means it's temperature dependent, which I guess is why you get some chemical reactions happening at certain temperatures. Yeah. So sometimes you need to heat something up to get a chemical reaction happening. Yes. Basically, they make you work for it. It's <laughs> a joke. We haven't really discussed work yet in the uh, context of thermodynamics. Do you want to explain yeah. what it is? Now you're talking about endothermic and exothermic reactions. So a reaction that needs heat to happen and a reaction that, you know, release heat when it happens. So here's an interesting example of an exothermic reaction, which is aerobic respiration. It happens for free. So that's respiration in the presence of oxygen. How does that happen for free? Explain. This is a very complicated process. There's a lot of steps. This was a bad example. I wish I was an easier example. Okay, so... So far, your contribution to this is looking up things that aren't very useful. Oh, pretty much. <laughs> but you're keeping us all on track, though. You're letting us know when we're saying something utterly stupid, I think, which I think is going to happen quite a lot. Because as, we, as we're saying, this is quite a difficult topic to get your head around. Yeah, yeah I have an example that explain this balance between the heat supplied to the system and the entropy and the temperature, which is, I think, we all use on our daily life. It's boiling eggs. The conversion of liquid egg to a solid egg while boiling it, uh, you can explain it thermodynamically because the major component of the egg white is a protein. And I cannot say the name of it because I cannot spell it. <laughs> but then it is held in a compact and ordered and structured kind of way. And this structure is uh, held by hydrogen bonds. But then to break these bonds, actually, we supply heat, yeah? So that's why we put it on the hub uh, with water. And then when we supply heat, we are in increasing the enthalpy. So if en enthalpy is positive, then delta G is positive, then the process is not spontaneous, then we can reverse it. 
left. However, at a temperature above the boiling point of water, which is 100 uh, degrees, the term T times delta S, which is the entropy times the temperature, outweigh delta H and delta G then become negative and therefore the egg is boiled and you can never reverse the process from boiled egg to just, you know, white loose egg. Okay, so that's because of the way the entropy, that delta S term changed. Yes, because it seems that at high temperature, above 100 degree, you are breaking these H bonding and you are increasing the randomness of the egg white protein. And therefore, delta S is increasing and the temperature is high. Therefore, this term from the Gibbs free energy is higher than the heat supply to the system. Uh, Gibbs energy then is negative and therefore this process becomes spontaneous and irreversible. Okay, that's quite a good um, real life explanation of why Gibbs free energy is so useful to understand, I think. We're back to food again as well, which I like. (laughs) Don't cook your eggs if you don't want cooked eggs. (laughs) This is going to take another really weird term, so I'm going to change the topic. So much for keeping us on track. How this podcast goes, it's always a bit... I was going to say a bit random. That's a terrible pun. Bit, bit full of entropy. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so I'm going to change topic. We like film references or movie references in this podcast. And in the Avengers, Captain America has a shield that absorbs all vibration. I don't think that's possible. I know it's a film, so they don't have to have things that are physically possible. But if something were to absorb vibration, all vibrations, what would that mean? Well, if I had to speculate, and it is speculate, I would say that the shield would have to be very, very heavy and very dense. Because I would imagine it to be like a two-body system where you have one like bigger mass is stationary. And then you have a lighter mass, which is moving, that collides with the stationary mass and then the lighter mass completely changes its momentum or can come to a halt but the stationary mass doesn't actually change physically and so if in this scenario we're imagining that the shield is the stationary mass I think I can I guess conceptualize it there but I also do think maybe it's me getting a bit confused with the whole Thor's hammer being very very heavy (laughs) <laughs> but I think they're very similar, though. I swear there's something about the fact that they're similar. So maybe physically they're similar. I then think we have a three-body system because there's a thing hitting the shield and there's Captain America holding the shield. Oh. So is Captain America the more... Dirty? Or, or, or is he better at absorbing? It, is Captain America absorbing all of the momentum? Or is the shield absorbing it but the shield is yeah the shield is so as long as the person holding it is strong enough to hold it up yeah they don't have to also withstand the force of something hitting it that's what the shield does so captain america is just a stand in that case he could be an inanimate object wouldn't matter it doesn't have to be a person (laughs) (laughs) i think it helps that he's a superhero though does maybe him and the shield form one system, and they are the big mass. They're under the unstoppable force. Yeah, yeah. But then I don't know. Like the shield by itself can do stuff, I guess. But Captain America by himself can do stuff as well. But like when they're both together, it's so, like the strongest. So if between Captain America and his shield, they keep absorbing all this vibrational energy, what are they doing with it? How are they storing it? 
thermodynamics is just the transfer of heat or the transfer of energy. So if all this energy is being transferred to them, what happens to it? And we know that energy cannot be created or destroyed, only transformed unless you have E equals MC squared. But I don't think we're creating any mass. Yeah, you'd be creating mass inside of them. Maybe that's how Captain America feeds. That's what I wanted to say, Laura. When I was like, no, maybe he doesn't eat, actually. Have you spotted him eating at any time? Trauma. <laughs> It has a trauma at the end. Oh, his shield is just a conduit for him to get energy and not have to eat food. That's what we're going with. We're back to food again. Oh, <laughs> I tend towards food, not towards randomness. Oh. <laughs> Talking about, you mentioned that you do chemistry and there's a lot of thermodynamics in it. And I think you you're also using it in your current job, right? Do you want to take us back onto more sensible topics? Yeah, I think I'm I'm going to take it here very seriously. Um, back to serious discussion. So yes, as a um, reactor chemistry modeler, one of the very useful aspects of thermodynamics uh, that we use is thermodynamics modeling, which is used to predict chemical speciations and properties at conditions that are impossible to measure in laboratory. For example, if you talk about the pressurized water reactor that are used in the nuclear power plants, and they are, by the way, the basic uh, model for the new UK SMR, that we are all looking forward to see uh, them emerge in the near future. So uh, thermodynamics is a really essential part of their design. So the PWR operates in very special conditions. So we're talking about hydrothermal regimes and temperature between 100 and 350 degrees. And we have there the water and we have, you know, the presence of radioactive materials, of moderators that can be like acids, other electrolytes, you know, are there. And we have also the, the vessel itself, which is, you know, a kind of metal or metal alloy. So we, we are expecting a lot of reactions that may be happening in the, in the reactor. And... The thermodynamic allow us to understand these chemical reactions that might happen. If we don't understand these, actually, uh, that might lead to different complications. For example, a fatigue or corrosions of the metal or like drop of efficiency in the, you know, in the reactor itself. So with the thermodynamic, we can infer from reactions happening at, let's say, standard conditions or lab laboratory conditions, and then extrapolate them to predict uh, conditions and thermodynamics entry at higher temperature. And this is really complicated to explain, and I don't understand it myself even, but I know that people spend like 20, 30 years uh, of their life trying just to derive entries for chemical species that are present in the PWR uh, that no one can understand uh, till, till that moment. So that's what I do at the moment in my role, but I'm really very new to that. So yeah, but I'm quite excited to learn more about it. But that sort of illustrates how useful thermodynamics is, that you can take something that you've done in a laboratory and then extrapolate from that to more extreme conditions. But that's interesting because basically we've gone from like the theoretical Gibbs free energy, figuring out what reactions are going to happen spontaneously and all that. And people working in your area are able to actually predict chemical reactions and whether or not they would happen without having to experimentally 
do all of them and find out all of the options. Yeah, it is very simply explained, but it is really very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you said there's a lot of materials, a lot of different chemicals in there, and there's radiation as well, which does all sorts of wild things. Yeah, exactly. And there's also some deposit that they call crud, but they don't know actually what these materials are. Because whenever they want to understand or replicate that in a a lab, you know, the whole operating conditions change and these materials, their solubility might uh, differ or the reactivity might differ. And then they would have totally different different uh, results from that i think pressurized water reactors have been around for a fair while the uk has got like 60 years experience of operating nuclear reactors there's there's an awful lot that we know about them but it's interesting to see that there is still more to find out and it's more about those finer details that thermodynamics can help us look at you would decide then about the design or the pwr to make it more more efficient or less um, complicated chemically for example by choosing a different moderator would change what chemical reactions uh, would happen inside the pwr one thing that impresses me is you talked about chemical reactions happening which obviously is quite a small scale thing and then scaling up all the way to these really big like reactors that are bigger than a building usually bigger than my house um, and then a, a different length scale again is what I was doing in my PhD which is what Emma mentioned which is like statistical mechanics so I understand that as a very simple definition is that it's sort of a description of physical systems and where the atoms are sitting in that system and what momentum they have. So that's an even smaller, that's beyond chemical reactions. This is what the actual atoms are doing. And thermodynamics can encompass all of that. Yeah, because with statistical mechanics, as I said, it kind of what fit everything together for me because it looks basically probabilities and how the probabilities of a system determine what the average energy is going to be, what the average number of particles is going to be for magnetization, what their magnetization could be. With large systems, statistical mechanics is following the second law of thermodynamics in that the entropy is always going to evolve to a system with maximum entropy. So essentially maximum disorder. Entropy is very related to Um, order and disorder in a system and so that's what statistical mechanics is uh, kind of governing I'd say it's very like probability based which can be a bit scary but it's it really is nice sometimes to think about the bigger picture of things rather than just think about specific heat transfers to different places if you can look at things from a very broad view it can help you understand how entropy changes occur and uh, when you're moving into this state of disorder it's really intriguing because I saw in um in a film in 2020 that came out Tenet I didn't know if it was just movie magic at the start but they mentioned entropy uh, and they said that um it's all about inversion and things moving backwards in time and so the idea is that they have like a bullet which moves backwards in time and so its entropy decreases as we view it but not to get to physics and talk about inertial frames but in the bullet's own inertial frame, its entropy is increasing, which is allowed, and that is moving backwards in time, but we're viewing it as this bullet, which is decreasing entropy, which is supposedly impossible through the laws of probability and statistical mechanics. You can't have something that 
decreases entropy, but if it's moving backwards in its own inertial frame, apparently you can intend it anyways. Basically, it was, it's based around the second law of thermodynamics being broken, but also not necessarily broken if you're in the right inertial frame, which is why the film is kind of confusing. And I was like thinking I was really smart because I understood what entropy meant, but the film is very confusing, so it doesn't actually help much. But it's um, it's just about how important changes to physics, such as how the second law of thermodynamics being broken, is it even possible that that could lead to inversion and people moving backwards in time? Because I was like, I don't even know, because entropy is such a huge kind of concept. I don't know if entropy could decrease, if it would lead to people moving backwards in time, but maybe... <laughs> maybe tenet is what we need to base our textbooks on in the future yeah see and i was trying to read up on statistical mechanics in preparation for this episode um i came across uh, a textbook that's online from stanford university i think and they mentioned this and they said that the second law of thermodynamics entropy can only go in a certain direction it's only really theoretical and it's not really a law so much as a definition and it, you're right it depends on your reference point so because we're used to time moving a certain way, an example could be that if I break the window that I'm sitting next to, that window isn't spontaneously going to put itself back together. And I understand that intuitively. But if we looked at the world in a different way, entropy might be different. Therefore, time might run different. I don't think that's really how it was used in the film. People, they go through some sort of device to yeah. invert entropy. <laughs> The device was the thing that I think made it a bit a bit less scientific. The fact that there was a device that somebody goes through and they do like one revolution of this like turn in device and automatically their entropy is decreased and they're moving backwards in time. That was a bit of movie magic. I don't think there's a device which can decrease your entropy, uh, especially something that was just so like it just looked like a lift. We uh, we learned the specific fact of that when when we're doing about these like huge laws of probability with the entropy having to go in one direction was that if you have a very, very small system, you can actually have this decrease in entropy, which is kind of like freaky. But obviously in any given system, you have so many atoms and so many states that you're never going to observe this decrease. With moving forward in time as well, it just made me think about antiparticles and how I think it was Feynman theorized antiparticles as particles moving backwards in time and we've kind of like accepted the concept of antiparticles moving backwards in time as this fact so like if we've accepted that antiparticles and particles moving backwards in time maybe entropy decreasing isn't so crazy i don't know it's one of those things it's all about probability and it's quite difficult to get your head around all the details of Especially if yeah. you're someone like me that doesn't like just looking at equations on a page. I like words. So I think having these discussions is quite useful to helping understand these different concepts. And I think the different points of view here have been really useful. So we've got like a chemical engineer, chemist, a physicist, and I do random things. I guess take my, my PhD was in computational chemistry. So let's use that as my background. So I think this is probably quite a good place to end the conversation. So having covered a range of stuff, including lots of food-related terrible puns <laughs> and talking about Captain America in 
movies that don't make much sense, I guess, from what you were saying, Emma. Yeah. Using some quite difficult to understand physical definitions. All this strange, complicated maths is also really useful for society. We're talking about refrigeration that changed cities, and now we're talking about using heat pumps to decarbonize how we heat our homes by using electricity to move heat around rather than just burning gas. So there's probably quite a lot more that thermodynamics can do for us, I suppose. If what we said hasn't made any sense, please feel free to tell us. If you want us to clarify anything, also ask. You can email us. You can find us on Twitter and we are also on Instagram. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.